0: Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of That 401k Podcast. Um, This week's subject, we're going to talk about great participant features for uh, 401k plans that can cause a plan sponsor a lot of headaches. But of course, first things first, that 401ksite.com for further information on all our live events. Seattle, September the 9th, Friday night. Um, Looking forward to that one, as well as uh, events in... um, November, November 18th, Charlotte, North Carolina, and, of course, um, that 4K National Virtual Conference, which will be held in January 2023. We'll have sites up soon for the National Virtual and Charlotte. Uh, Seattle's coming up in about uh, six weeks. Um, looking forward to that one. Um, so 100 bucks gets you in. Good 4K content, as well as the opportunity to go to the Braves-Mariners game that night. Uh, of course, that4k site.com, again, for further information and how you can sign up. Easy peasy, all that kind of stuff. And um, let's go back to the subject at hand. Uh. There are a lot of features dealing with designing 401k plans that can really give a uh, plant sponsor um, a lot of headaches and always reminds me of uh, a line in the movie, Back to School, Rodney Dangerfield's first wife passed away and he's celebrating the anniversary of his second wife, Vanessa, who we learn is not as, you know, nice as the first wife, whatever, and uh, at one point, uh, Rodney says to, uh, Thornton Mellon says to his uh, chauffeur, Lou, played by the uh, Burt Young from the Rocky movies, he said something along the lines, you know, Vanessa, she gives a good headache. And of course, Vanessa's played by Adrian Barbeau. And Thornton, at the party, you know, he can't find, uh, you know, food that he likes, no cerveza, so he can't drink any beer and whatever. And she carries, she can he, um, You know, uh, uh, Thornton catches Vanessa uh, having an affair and whatever it is. But I always like that line. She gives a good headache. And there are a lot of foreign key plan features. While on paper are are fantastic ideas, they are full of mistakes. And um, automatic enrollment, I think, is one of them. I love automatic enrollment. I love the idea behind it. But as a planned sponsor, I might be wary of it. Uh, Listen, with my knowledge as a planned sponsor, sure, you know, I'd I'd make sure that automatic enrollment would be implemented correctly. But this is one of those things where I just see it being a big mistake. Uh, Automatic enrollment, again, I think is a great feature. Um, As I I think I even said last week. When it was negative election, I was very much against it. I just thought it was a cheap way to prop up the EDP of the NHCEs. Um, and there was no fiduciary uh, relief, so uh, planned sponsors would take the negative election money and they'd have to put it into like a staple value or a money market account or something with minimal uh, liability exposure. Because, you know, if a participant can't direct their own investments, then there's no protection in the 404C. When we changed the code in 2006 through the Pension Protection Act, we had the implementation of automatic enrollment, finally adding to the Internal Revenue Code, and then we had the QDIA, which was was fantastic. Um, The problem with automatic enrollment, again, is when plan sponsors don't implement it and don't take out deferrals from participants' paychecks. So there's always a whole question whether there's corrective contributions that have to be made or just a whole litany of problems. And, you know, the failure to implement the automatic enrollment to me is almost tied to the whole failure to give the participants the opportunity to defer. It's almost the same kind of uh, uh, nonsense. So, you know, is it possible with the automatic enrollment feature if not implemented properly, stands to reason especially if you did you know coupled with the, opt- uh, the, the coupled with the chance that you didn't properly enroll these people there may be a corrective contribution on the employer's side um, and I've seen just headaches with automatic enrollment and the the headaches are with plan sponsors that just aren't up to the task and fulfilling the provisions of the plan and quite often that you know that's the case um, more so than you realize. And talking about one feature that we love, um, that causes great headache, is matching contributions. Uh, my wife was, uh, you know, saying my wife's new job. Uh, she worked at a firm for over two years that she left didn't get me didn't give any employer contributions whatsoever. And uh, as much as I complain about the places that I work uh, in the past. All of them gave me employer contributions. I mean, you know, the, the three the three jobs that I had, the three main jobs where I was in a 401k plan, uh, there was always an employer contribution. Um, that law firm that I've been making fun of for the last 12 years um, in helping promote my practice, uh, even when I was there, uh, we got a 5% uh, fully vested contribution, you know, 3% safe harbor plus like a 2% profit sharing. Five percent, huge deal. My wife uh, was happy to find out that there was a ten percent match. And matching contributions, again, um, I think it's a great mechanism uh, because, for the employer, it's more cost-effective in my mind of a, than a profit sharing because it, it you know, it, it effectively incentivizes employees to defer because they don't get a contribution if they don't. So essentially, we, we call it free money for people deferring. I never see it as free money, because it's not really free, uh, and it's not dollar for dollar. It's usually you know 10% or 25% or whatever it may be. It's never gonna equal what an employee defers, but it's a great incentive for them to do that. The problem with matching contributions is really in my mind based on the funding mechanism, um, how to do it. Um, you know, there's a limit to how um, you know people will match. It's limited to the percentage of deferrals up to a specific percentage of compensation. What causes the problem is the consistency of funding versus payroll period slash annual comp. My opinion is I come from the school of keep it simple, stupid. So my idea is in an ideal situation, employers would only defer on an annual – would only match on a def, uh, annual basis. Unfortunately, uh, we don't live in my ideal world. Uh, most of the time, employers want to do it by payroll period. I don't like payroll period, comp for limitations and whatnot. The reason I, I like annual better is because people don't realize, but um, participants do fluctuate in the deferral percentage throughout the year. Um, I remember doing that one time um, when I first started working for Harvey Berman. And, and the reason I did that was because I knew that Thanks to the deductibility limits back in play in 2000 prior to EGTRA, if you recall, an employer under a 401k plan was limited to a 15% deductibility, which included salary deferrals, which I thought was one of the most ridiculous rules. And since I was pretty much the only um, employee at the time, aside from a secretary, uh, there might be issues in, in getting a refund. and so that's why I, I cut back and, and that was uh, again a place where I, I did get a matching contribution. So the problem is is that um, you know people do um, people you know pe- participants fluctuate throughout the year. That's why I like annual comp. When, um, I, I think the biggest problem is when you're doing, uh, you have to be consistent for matching contributions. So if you're using payroll period comp as the limit, then you should fund on a payroll period basis. Same thing on an annual and an annual. Otherwise, if you match, on a payroll period and fund annually or the other way around, there may be accounting issues. There may be a troop that's required. Um, And, you know, it's just just a headache uh, in terms of getting the contribution correctly. And the problem with it, on the administrative side, I see so many mistakes happening um, where the contribution is is done incorrectly, and, and that's a problem uh, because those kind of errors are not determined until many years later. Uh, and then there's the contribution that's owed next on my hit list, participant direction of investments. Um, as a former participant in k plans, I like to pick my own investments. I just, you know, I'm, I'm probably more, uh, Liberal when it comes to investments, more of a long-term growth investor than um, I would assume that a, a plan sponsor would be, in, 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 in you know probably coming up with a maybe a target date type fund on their end where they, you know, at fifty something years old, they give me exposure to, to bonds, which you know still still think young at heart. I wouldn't want that, but um, you know. I started in this business in 1998 when there were a lot more trustee-directed plans. Participant-directed investments took off, in my mind, in the late 90s, thanks to the technology, um, as well as the go-go 90s of investing, where every mutual fund was just had eye-popping returns, especially anything related to a technology fund. And, um, Mutual fund companies saw that uh, 401k plants would be a great method of distributing their funds, so they were pushing the notion of a ERISA 404C that um, plant sponsors would be protected if participants um, would direct their own investments. Of course, the problem is is that they never to tell the plant sponsor that they had this fiduciary process that they needed to follow in educating plant participants and uh, having investment policy statement and reviewing funds based on the IPS, plan sponsors thought they could just simply pick a fund line up, never bother to review it. And, you know, and, and that's that. And uh, so often I always bring up my old law firm where, you know, for 10 years, they never, you know, had a financial advisor and they never reviewed plan investments. And, you know, they thought they, everything was good. and. I told the HR director that, you know, the plan sponsor, they were liable for any losses sustained by plan participants because, you know, it's uh, you're, not, you're not giving uh, participants enough information to make informed investment decisions. And so that's why it could be a big headache. I think a lot of plan sponsors are still in the same boat as my old law firm where they don't have a financial advisor. Or if they do have a financial advisor, it's what I call the milk carton advisor. And the milk carton advisor... They're not as popular as they used to be, but the milk carton advisor is somebody who collected a fee, uh, never serviced the client whatsoever, and you know the plan sponsor hasn't seen that advisor in so long that their picture should have been on a milk box, like you know milk carton, like the old missing kids um, when they started adding that in the eighties. But um, we don't see those advisors out that much anymore, but they still exist. My favorite. Miss Milk Carton advisor was dealing with a Pennsylvania um, practice, medical practice, and Ash, you know, they paid me to review the plan, and they were paying an advisor in those days, you know, for, for obviously the, uh, for, our, for our listeners who, who know a thing or two, the advisor was making 60 basis points on a 14 million dollar plan, uh, the way I calculate it, that's about, what, $84,000 a year for doing nothing. Um, that's a huge, huge amount of money um, to do nothing. And uh, until I came along and told them that uh, the advisor was not doing their job and they were subject to liability in the rest of 404C, you know, they were they were still using that advisor until I put my two cents in. They, they the advisor. Hired a 338, and I want to say cut their fee for advisory work by about 60 something percent. And next on my hit list, in terms of headache, um, you know, loans. Um, loans are a problem. Um, You know, I if I was a plan sponsor with employees, I would allow loans, Uh, but I I hate it. Uh, And the reason I would allow loans is I always believe that, you know, we're not a bank uh, in terms of CDs, uh, certificates of deposit, or we penalize people who want their money early. Uh, In my mind, it's the participants' money, and if it's the participants' money, They should have access to it, and one of the ways they can access it is through a loan. Um, You know, I've never used the loan provision. My wife has never used the loan provision. We've been lucky that way, even though we got (laughs) decimated Hurricane Sandy, and I sit here in my wife's office uh, where there was five feet of water. This office that I sit in right now used to be my office. and I'm looking to an area where they now have, uh, i got some autographs from my wife and there's some pictures and whatnot. But my metal cabinet was there, which uh, had all my paper files. And uh, needless to say, it was sitting in my backyard for a year to, you know, um, dry out. And uh, thankfully, I no longer have a metal filing cabinet. Everything is paperless now. But you know we we were lucky; we never had to take out a loan. But I understand why people have to take out loans. People take out loans to buy a house. Um, I want to say my mother did that many years ago when they were moving from New York City to out here in Long Island. Um, it's a great, great way um, for participants to get their money. It's a participant direct investments. Uh, they pay it back through their paycheck. Um, you know, there's that maximum five year period, obviously if it's a home loan, it's a lot longer, it's gotta be repaid quarterly, reasonable rate of interest, all that kind of stuff. The problem is the loan defaults, um, deemed distributions, 1099, there's no loan offsets unless there's a, you know, obviously a, um, event, but I just see so many mistakes happen with loans. And typically, they happen because um, plan sponsor, through the help of the TPA, fails to pay off one or more loans, and that's why I'm always a big fan of one loan um, maximum at a time, one loan outstanding at a time. There's nothing worse than a plan sponsor with unlimited loans, and I had it where the plan sponsor had you know participants with seven or eight loans, and the problem is it's like juggling. You juggle seven balls up. Unless you're a master juggler, one of them or more is going to fall. And that's how I see plan loans. Um, I I just see, I mean, there's nothing worse on the plan sponsor side to tell a participant, oh, by the way, you didn't pay quarterly. Your loan is default, especially if it's a plan sponsor's problem. Uh, Even if it's a plan participant's problem, it's, it's a headache, especially if 1099s haven't been produced to acknowledge the distribution. Again, most of the time when we have a default and we don't tell the plan participants, it's usually the fault of the TPA and or plan sponsor. Uh, Again, um, that one loan outstanding is a a lifesaver. Allow them to uh, consolidate, refinance, whatnot. But again, at the end of the day, there should only be one. And there should be a $1,000 minimum. We are, uh, we, I mean, the plant sponsors are not a payday loan specialist. Um, they need to require, uh, you know, more than a $1,000 minimum. So we, we don't want participants to come. I don't think it's good policy for a participant to come in for a $500 loan and there's a $50 to $150 loan fee. That's just my mind, um, the best way to do it. And, and, of course, I think it's important from a compliance standpoint to have um, paperwork to acknowledge when it's a home loan for the 30-year uh, maximum and make sure that the participant you know spits it out and puts it out there. Last but not least, hardship distributions. Um, I still get all the time hardship requests where I have to give my end of it there's always this kind of weird part with the new hardship regulations where, you know, um, you don't no longer have to accept, you no longer have to take backup. You have to take the participant's word for it. And I'm still of the belief that I don't take, you know, it's that Stone Cold CO Austin, um, you know, moniker of don't trust anybody. I, I think that I still want a vet because... Um, I don't take people's word for it. Uh, I'm I'm concerned um, with these new regulations that if you take people's word for it, there may be an audit down the line and questioning you about it and whatnot and what your knowledge was because the new regs say, yeah, you can take the participant's word for it unless you know otherwise. And then you should should have vetted it. You don't get that protection. So that's why I still like to vet hardship requests. And, you know, I'm... uh, uh, I'll be honest, again, I, I like hardship. Um, I think plants should have a hardship uh, provision in it. People, you know, their situations may require an immediate financial need. problem with it is you'll be surprised how silly some of these requests are. Um, there'll be requests for people who want, you know, I, I, I refused one for higher education because they were going to astrology school. And in my opinion, that's not a post-secondary education. Uh, if we allow that, then, you know, in my mind, my golf instructor's little summer golf school, if I wanted to attend, even though I would be with a bunch of 12-year-olds and playing golf, is that post-secondary education? I, you know, if, if astrology school is post-secondary education, maybe golfing is too, you know. Uh, maybe I want to be on the uh, Live Golf or PGA Tour. But based on how I hit with the driver, that's not ever going to happen. But I I just don't like the idea of the IRS saying, oh, yeah, take their word for it. But if you have imputed knowledge, you have a problem. Um, I, uh, I don't want to be Sergeant Schultz in Hogan's Heroes where he says, I know nothing. I hear nothing. I see nothing. I want to know everything. And I want to know what my participants need money for. And I want to make sure that it fits within the hardship criteria. And this new reg is consistent with um, a few years ago, one of the big mutual fund companies came out with a uh, service where they would just rubber stamp any hardship request, take it off the plan sponsor's plate. But of course, at that time, there still was that kind of substantiation. And I still like backup requests. I I don't want to get in trouble as a plan sponsor for things that I should have known and I didn't. And again, I don't think this regulation uh I like the I like the idea that hardship now, you know, you could use earnings, you could use QNX, you don't need the loan to maximize it, that's all great, but that's substantiation, it's just not something I'm a big fan of. Um I like to know everything. <laughs> I that's just me. Maybe being a control freak, but I want to make sure that people uh, meet that that requirement. And again, I understand that I'm uh, one of those people who, you know, isn't going to approve a distribution for medical expenses when it was for the participant, you know, a year or two before they joined the plan. It's not an immediate heavy financial need. And again... um, don't trust anybody, and I don't trust plan participants to do the right thing, and and meet the requirements. So that's why um, I still have clients that uh, still send me hardship requests to substantiate it. It's just my two cents, and you know I, I think you can certainly have the flexibility of following the regs and foregoing the substantiation requirement. But again, that's not something I'm willing to do. So anyway, that concludes this episode of the 41 k Podcast. Hope you in next tune in next week. And, of course, join us in Seattle, Charlotte. And, of course, virtually next January, we'll talk about uh, the virtual event. We're going to cut down the early bird special pricing, so it just costs you a couple of dollars, literally a couple of dollars to attend and save your space uh, for what will be a unique uh, virtual two-day event. And I hope you uh, have a great week and tune in next week. And, of course, go to that4kzac.com on informational events. Take care. And, uh, again, have a great week. Bye.